welcome to episode 28 of Anatomy of Tone. In this week's podcast, I wanted to look at one of my favorite plugin manufacturers, PSP AudioWare. I've been using PSP plugins since the early thousands, and they've been around for a long time for a reason. They make really incredible sounding plugins that are perfect for mixing. Now, in a lot of my previous podcasts, I focused a lot on processing sound before we recorded. Now, I wanted to spend some time talking about how I might process sound after it's been recorded. There are definitely times where I still send signals out to analog gear to process it if I want to experiment and have the tactile experience, but often by the time I have things in the box and the recorded, I will use plugins to further process it. And this is where PSB comes in a lot for me because I use them quite frequently and have for quite some time. Now, before I get into that, I want to talk a little bit about what I have going on this week. I'll be releasing a couple of videos on YouTube related to learning how to play over chord changes and using associated modes with those chords, but developing an exercise that can help you hone in on it. One of the things that happens a lot of times when players are trying to learn to play over chords and if they're trying to use chord scales, match scales, or modes to chords, they end up playing every single note of the mode. And it's almost, you end up in a situation where you have option paralysis and you can't really decide. You're not making curated decisions and developing great melody lines that way. And it's really difficult to learn how to solo over chords with a subset of notes or a selection of notes that sound melodic as opposed to just using everything all at once. I developed some exercises that are going to focus on playing four bars at one time of a chord progression, developing one phrase that's going to work over all those four bars, and just repeating that process. So for this first video I made, I just focused on using the first, second, third, and fifth notes from whatever mode we were using to associate with the chord. So if we're using Dorian over the two chord, I'm going to only play the first, second, the flat three, and the five from the Dorian mode. So obviously the one, two, three, five, some modes you use are gonna have a flat two in it, and some are gonna have a, a, just a natural two in it. So you have to adjust for the mode you're in, but still the point is that we're developing lines only using the one, two, three, and five. Now, this comes from the John Coltrane philosophy, but it doesn't just have to be associated with jazz. It's something that we can use in all different genres of music. And what this does is it allows us to refine our search for melody lines so we don't have all the notes all seven notes to choose from in the mode we're now refining it to a few key notes that we're also going to voice lead meaning when i play the phrase i'm going to try to find the closest note for the next mode or scale to connect it to, meaning I'm trying to avoid a lot of large skips in between chords and switching modes. I'll be more clear about this in the video because you could see me playing it and the transcription on the screen, as well as I will have a downloadable PDF. And in the video, I used the key of D flat major just to try to push everybody to get used to playing and less favorable keys for guitar. But I will have a PDF available if you email me my website at anatomyofguitartone.com where I will also have the examples just in the key of C, which when I'm teaching lessons is usually where I like to base all my examples. We can understand it in the key of C. It's so much easier to then branch out to all the various key signatures 
scenarios that we all should know when we're making music, but base everything in C, branch out. Now, one of the points about this exercise is I was also using pen and paper to construct a melody line for four bars. The idea wasn't I was constantly wandering through the scale or just not really considering about constructing something and only randomly thinking about the one, two, three, five. I was also trying to write something. I was thinking about doing something melodic. If I was going to compose a solo, how would I do that? So writing it down on paper, whether you're using tablature or more optimally, you would be transcribing it out in the treble clef or guitar or whatever instrument you're playing. If you're playing bass, you'd use the bass clef. Reading notation is just going to do nothing but help you in your music career, so I do recommend doing it. The advantage of this is you end up composing four bars and then you can move this around different key signatures if you want but still we're looking at four bars of music that we've transcribed an actual melody line out we can see how we're voice leading it we can create variations and change articulations within those notes so i'm going to even use those four bars in the notation that i wrote out on paper to then expand my exercises just to be able to think about like i said articulations and uh, transpositions and stuff so there's a lot that we can get out of just one exercise and being able to write it down and thinking about melody construction writing it down is also helping me start to think about how i'm constructing a melody right and what notes are the best pillars to land on over that, that chord or etc there's so many different ways we could dig into this but go to my youtube channel which will be anatomy of tone and you can find the first video they're going to be staggered on the releases but the first video will be up and by the time this podcast is released so you can check that out and then email me if you want a pdf and the second example i'm going to release is going to relate to just going between chord tones with stepwise motion but just getting between those chord tones using scale or mode degrees or whatever mode or scale you're in to get to them so just like passing tones essentially from the mode to get between different chord tones that we're going to stop on now i know i've talked about it before but deliberate practice is so important make sure that you're always considering your weaknesses and have a clear list of where you need to develop and work on those particular skills. Now, combining deliberate practice with a practice schedule, even if you have limited time, can show much greater results in progress than if you're randomly practicing and you have all the time in the world. So it's amazing what you can do with limited time if you're very focused. And these exercises are obviously they're very deliberate. So even if you go and watch the first video and spend consider amount of time and that for a couple of weeks maybe if it's only even five minutes a day but just the repetition of it for maybe one to two weeks if not more is really going to show up in your playing in a favorable way and you're designing melodies or trying to navigate through tricky chord changes in my book practice makes progress i spend some time talking about the art of practicing which isn't apparent immediately to everybody i know it wasn't to me and i feel like for a number of years i wasn't practicing to my full potential but when I learned how to practice effectively it really changed everything and cut down my learning time I would at least in a half now that's not to say that within two days I've learned something obviously there still is an amount of time it takes to properly learn a new skill or habit but it has even cut down that progress as compared to what it used to be before I had 
those skills. If you're looking to get deeper into the philosophy of practicing and need somebody to coach you on developing more exercises and methods to help your progress and your particular interests, reach out to me at anatomyofguitartone.com. I teach private lessons. I specialize in immediate to advanced players that feel like they've hit a wall and they have some skills, but they just feel like they're not growing. This is where I step in and really help you develop a practice routine and a plan so that you can make steady progress and stop hitting walls in the future. So lessons I design aren't just for the purpose of temporarily solving hitting walls. It's basically setting you up so that in the future you can prevent yourself from getting stuck and hitting walls. talk about PSP plugins. PSP is a really cool company that's been around since 2000. In fact, they were the first pro audio software company in post-communist Poland. And they got into the business and had no industry connections, nothing. They just worked their way up. Back in the days when we had dial-up internet and it was really shoddy, they found a way to make these amazing plugins and musicians started recognizing them and the business just grew and they're still making wonderful plugins today and are valid, which is not something that could be said about a lot of early 2000 plugins. There have been a lot of companies that have come and gone, but PSP has standed the test of time. I think it's because of their dedication to sound. I think their intentions when they started making the plugins were pure and, and, and really highly interested in the quality of sound and they've just progressed with technology over the years and still make a lot of the same plugins. Of course, they've gone through updates and they're always trying to make things better. So they're a company that stands by their products and is always evaluating and updating when things are changing in the industry or uh, technology changes. And so I've been using them for a long time. They've always been a mainstay in my mixing process. And it doesn't mean I don't use other plugins. I think obviously, just like in a real recording studio, we have a variety of different compressors and delays and etc. But they're always in the roundup of plugins that I'm cycling through because I know their sound just like all the plugins I have, I don't just have an endless supply of plugins. I don't find that to be positive. I have a smaller curated collection of plugins that I know how they sound. So I know how the PSP saturator sounds different than the Fab Filter saturator. So you get to know plugins just like you get to know analog gear and what personality they have. So not every saturator is the same, not every multiband compressor is the same, not every delay is the same. PSP has a, a unique in individual voice that I really like, and that's why I still use them. Let's talk about a few of them. I'm gonna start off talking about one that's fairly new for them that I'm very excited about. It's called the Binamp, and basically, it is the preamp section from a Benson Echo Rec 2, which was released in 1960. The 
Benson Echo Rec is a very rare delay. A lot of people associate the Echo Rec with David Gilmour, who used it in the majority of his career. It's the sound of the dark side of the moon and various other Pink Floyd records with this lovely delay sound. And sometimes the Echo Rec can almost create these reverb-like sounds. It has multiple heads on it that can be, it's like almost like a multi-tap delay in some ways. And there's different presets on it for the combinations of the different uh, times of the delays. But one thing that hasn't ever been replicated, actually the, the Benson Rec delay hasn't really, like Strymon has a pedal that emulates the Benson Echo Rec, and I think it does a, a, a pretty decent job at it. I don't know that it has really captured the sound of the preamp of the Benson Echo Rec. Now they do have emulation in it of the preamp. I just don't know that it, Personally, I don't know that it's really done the job of what the original Echo Rec has done. And other plug-in manufacturers, people have tried copying the Echo Rec, and it just seems to me that the focus has been on how the, the multi-head delay works or the multi-line delay works rather than it being as much about the sonic identity of the Echo Rec. So it's a hard thing to emulate, apparently. I started to think that maybe it just couldn't be done either in pedal form or in plug-in form until I tried the Binamp from PSP, and all of a sudden I was like, what is this? I didn't even know what it was at first. Honestly, I downloaded it, and I installed it, and I put it on some tracks, and I was just immediately, wow, like, I, I thought it's like a saturation plug-in of some sorts, which to some degree it is, and... I was just like really liking the way it sounded and I was just tweaking the knobs on it. There aren't that many knobs and I was tweaking the knobs on it and I just found that I was getting just great sounds out of it. The saturation on it had this really interesting earthy, like, I don't know, it was just something that I hadn't heard in a plug-in. And then I started looking up the details about it and it turns out it was the preamp of the Benson Echo Rec and I was like, Aha, uh -huh, right? There was something special happening there, which I recognize from what special happens with my tape delays when I use a real tape delay, which is another topic of how I feel like most tape delay pedals and plugins, they haven't fully captured what the preamp sounds like in those units. So with some delay pedals, I actually use the exotic EP1 booster, which is an emulation of one of the Echo Rex preamp sections that I either place before or after the Strymon El Capi stand to just get a little more of that Echo Rec preamp sound. So to me, the preamp sounds of a lot of analog devices are very important. And what I liked is that even before I knew what the Binamp was, I was responding to it very favorably, like I do when I use various analog preamps in front of my guitar amps or in front of uh, anything with keyboards. I also use preamps with keyboards and synthesizers because using an, an old Echoplex preamp or something of that nature just really is flattering to any audio signal that you're recording. And the PSP Binamp really does add some special character to signals. I really like it on guitar signals. I'll get new examples in a minute, but let's talk about what the features are on it now. It's a Class A triode preamp emulation, like what was in the Echo Rec. It has high-pass filtering, which I find 
very effective. It's great for guitar. Sometimes we're just focusing a guitar signal and sometimes when you record guitar amps, if you have the mics really close, sometimes the low end could be really flabby. And yeah, you can use EQ for this, but I don't know, like sometimes EQ in some ways, it's just almost, I wouldn't say aggressive, but Sometimes I'm finding other devices which just have a, a filtering options on them to be more favorable just because of their, I don't know, their algorithm or their choices in the way that they're filtering, how steep the filter is and et cetera. So I really like the high pass filter on the bin amp and I've been using that sometimes in lieu of reaching for an EQ and using the filter, say on a fat filter or something like that. Now there's also a high frequency roll off which is also lovely because that's another issue with guitars is sometimes the high end could be a little, just a little bright and in your face. And it's a very gentle roll off. It just warms up your signal in a very nice way. One other cool feature is they have a variable setting, which allows the behavior of multiple instances of the plugin across your DAW to be unique. So if you have a similar setting, say across multiple channels, having the variation setting adjusted will basically automatically create variances in the settings across all the plugins, which is nice because that's one of the beauties of analog gear is that you have variables that sometimes you can't always control. And there's a, the surprises that happen sometimes are wondrous and, and beautiful. And this is a feature that really allows us to get a little bit more of those surprises in our sounds when we have multiple instances open across our DAW, which I think is really cool. And I encourage you to experiment with. Let's listen to a couple of examples. This first example, I'm going to use a Stratocaster with FSC 59 pickups. I'm going to run into a Headstrong Little King and that's via the MP88S amp switcher. And from there, I have a universal audio Dell verb on. I'm gonna play the two examples back to back. I'm gonna start with the PSP bin amp off and then on. The difference, I think, is that the first version seems, quite frankly, a little more boring, a little more flat. It doesn't have as much vibe to it. The bin amp is just adding a little more depth, I think, in a way that you can't get with an EQ plug-in. The saturation is also adding a little bit of warmth, and there's an ever-so-subtle amount of very specific compression that's happening that you just wouldn't get with a compression plug-in. To me, when I AB those two with the bin amp, it just sounds more realized and exciting and something 
that I'd want to listen to that sounds more finished to some degree, which is how I feel when I plug through specific preamps and run them into my guitar amps, which is why I have some preamps like the Hudson Electronics Broadcast or the, I mentioned the Exotic XP or EP Booster that I use. So those are add a very specific flavor, much in the same way that this bin amp is adding, which I think is flattering. Let's listen to it with a big muff, which I'm using the... Vic Audio Ramshead 73. I love big muffs. Sometimes they could be a little tricky to capture. They tend to sound a little bright and raspy sounding. The bin amp, I think, is just mellowing it out in the right way without getting rid of any of the attack. It's not making it woofy, but it's making it sound richer. I'm going to play the unprocessed first and then the processed. <laughs> It's little touches like this that can really progress a sound forward. People think sometimes expect plugins or sounds or analog devices to be a bigger, broader strokes than they are. And the truth is that to me, that's clear as day how that changed the signal. But it's not as drastic as I think maybe people would expect it to be. And that's one of the things you have to learn about mixing is that there's a lot of small steps that you make that create big wave. The bin amp really does that for me in ways that solves problems when mixing because it solves some of the either the woofiness or the harshness that some guitar sounds will have and counters against maybe some of the imperfections that certain gear has or certain guitar sounds have like i was saying with the big muff it counteracts against that and adds a little bit more of a richness back in where it didn't have it this can also be really helpful when you're recording amp sims and di's or things like the strymon iridium where it just lacks a little bit of depth or almost like a 3d character and so putting the bin amp on it can actually help emphasize more of a realistic depth of sound. Next, I'm going to talk about the Vintage Warmer, which is one of PSP's oldest plugins and one of the earliest ones that I became familiar with them. It's one I still use to this day. It's a digital simulation of an analog style single or multi-band compression limiter. Now, it's not modeled after any specific old analog gear. It's its own thing, which is also really fascinating that doesn't sound like a Fairchild or anything else, right? It, it sounds like the PSP Vintage Warmer, but it's designed to operate as if it was a piece of gear made in a certain era of time, right? The 50s through the 60s. It offers soft knee and hard knee compression, as well as brick wall limiting. It has a very accurate VU meter on it, which is always super helpful to be able to monitor what's happening with your signal flow. Now it has a very different sound than the bin amp, so I may use it on the same sources just because I'm looking for more of that valve, vintage type of, of saturation as opposed to the preamp vibe from the bin amp. So this is what I'm talking about. You can learn like the characteristics of each one. So it's like knowing the difference between cumin and cinnamon. And the vintage warmer excels on pretty much every instrument. I really like it a lot on drums and I use it often on the mix bus or 
two of my favorite spots to use it, but I also use it on guitar and bass and anything I'm looking to fatten up the signal, but it does more than just fattening up the signal, of course. Don't just think it only does that one limiting thing upon there, and it's actually also a limiter. But it has EQ on it, it has a high and low adjust, and you can select a frequency for each. There's no Q knob on it, so it's more of a broad stroke EQ, which I find really great, because sometimes you're just looking to shift mix or a drum bus in a certain direction and boosting and cutting and a frequency for however they have this the cue set up on here which i think is pretty broad it really works well and it's, it's very flattering sounding eq so it's nice to just like quickly adjust the overall sound of something rather than it being surgical and then there's nice options on here for setting the knee there's uh, speed which is an attack and release there's a ceiling knob we have a brick wall knob button actually, which is really great for doing brick wall limiting. The mix knob I like a lot because sometimes when I'm saturating drum machines, I like to use the mix knob to adjust how much of the original signal comes through. This works great for mixing 808s and bass guitar or anything with a lot of low end. And sometimes I do use that mix feature. And we also have a drive knob on it, which is one of my favorite features. I do like saturation. I do drive. I'm very particular about it, obviously, for this podcast from using pedals and different devices to create saturation. Saturation, to me, I'm a big fan of it. Even when on those old recordings when they were meant to be clean and they were saturating because of what the time we thought of the limitations of the gear. Now we covered those sounds and go to great lengths to recreate them. I, I like those sounds of saturation. So the drive knob is really awesome. You can really make it dirty. You can really drive this thing and, and get some really saturated hard hitting compression sounds if you want to get aggressive with some room mics and use it in that sense or use it for a smash channel on bus on drums for bass drum and snare drum which sometimes i use the sound toys devil lock the psp can do that as well maybe not quite as aggressively as the devil lock but in this different flavor which is equally cool so consider using it in that setting as well i'm going to start with a very aggressive setting using a drum machine samples are very like 90s hip-hop like a vinyl sound and the vintage warmer really helped bring out that vinyl sound i really crushed it pretty hard so it's saturating pretty heavily let's listen to the unprocessed version first. Let's kick in the vintage warmer. I'm going to stay in the same genre, but this time I'm going to, it's going to be more of a beat with a couple other elements in it. And I'm going to saturate it, not quite as heavily, but I'm going to use the mix knob to blend in some saturated vintage warmer with the original sound. Here is the no vintage warmer version. Let's kick in the vintage warmer. Let's 
cool because the vintage warmer brought out almost a different pitch in the bass drum is there just accentuated and brought that pitch more forward which now almost has more of a melodic function let's try it with a trap beat vintage warmer off first Vintage warmer on. Now those are pretty aggressive uses of the vintage warmer for saturation. Wasn't really compressing all that much, was really just using it to saturate. I'm gonna use it on the mix bus now with Exotica composition that I wrote, just to make it sound a little bit more period correct. I think there's a little light compression happening here. I did have it in brick wall setting, and I used a little bit of the saturation, basically like the drive, to just, I don't know, it, it accentuates certain things in the mid-range, which wasn't happening when I didn't have it on, which I think you'll hear, and I think it glues it together and makes it sound a little more period correct. First version, vintage warmer off. Now with the vintage warmer on. process a nylon string guitar solo guitar part with the vintage warmer but I'm also using the PSP spring on it which is a really great spring reverb plugin found very few spring reverb plugins that I actually like I'm a purist when it comes to spring reverb I will admit to being a snob I'm very partial to my surfy bear metal my Demeter reverberator my two go-to's as well as the spring reverb inside the ARP 2600 it's just really hard to emulate that stuff but I will say that PSP and I'll talk about the spring reverb in a second that they make but they've created a really unique sounding spring reverb that I think stands on its own it doesn't sound like any of the other reverbs I have and I've used it sometimes just for its specific sound because it it doesn't fall short as in some ways it's doing its own thing and I really like that but let's listen to the nylon guitar here and get a sense of how those two elements are changing the sound I'll start with it dry now with processing
Let's talk about the features in the PSP Spring Box, which by the way, is PSP Spring Weaver plugin. It has a configuration of two to six springs, which is really nice because the fewer springs you have, so it's more of a springier sound that you get. And as you engage more springs, it becomes more like a studio reverb and you hear less of the springiness, but you still get some of the interesting EQ characteristics of what spring reverb is. You have options for AB settings on it. So you can have two settings available at one time and switch between them if you want to get fancy with automation or just be able to AB two different settings. You have lime trim, high pass filter on it, which I find very useful on reverbs. Sometimes when too much low end is going through a reverb, it just, it makes the mix muddy, your sound muddy. So being able to filter what is being triggered by the reverb is very helpful. There's also a presence knob on it. If you want to get some more bright sound out of it, there's a damp knob, which you can also contain some of the high-end brightness to it, which is also very useful with reverb. Sometimes I like to knock off the high-end. I do this with plate reverbs a lot, and I'll knock off the high-end and knock off the low-end. Sometimes I call this the Abbey Road trick, where you cut a lot of highs, cut a lot of lows, and just have it in a very specific space, and which allows the reverb to come through a nice way, but not get in the way of the guitar. So this is very unusual for a spring reverb to have these settings on it. So it's actually really nice to have this in a mixing capability to be able to adjust more as well as you have options for diffusion with the reverb and basically is like how much you want to hear the reverb bouncing around spread if you're using it as a stereo reverb and of course pan balance so you have a you can adjust the panning in it as well as the wet dry mix so it's a pretty flexible spring reverb and allows you to take a spring reverb sound but give it maybe more modern features as far as if you're using it in a mixing context and in a stereo context is all of my analog spring reverbs are mono. So to have an option for stereo in the box is really great to have when you're working in the mixing stage of a project. I'm going to use a Sequential Circuits Profit 10 analog synthesizer. I'm going to run it through the Vintage Warmer and the PSB Springbox. The Springbox is going to be a more of a, a springy, bigger reverb sound than a nylon guitar, which was trying to emulate a little more of what a medium-sized room would sound like. This is more of a, a wet spring reverb sound. And the vintage warmer is just really bringing out some of the earthy low end of the synthesizer. And the Prophet has a healthy low end on it, but the vintage warmer just in some ways makes it bigger, but also tightens the low end in an interesting way. With no processing. <laughs> You're hearing a little reverb because I recorded it with a Chase Bliss CXM 1978, but I wanted to process it with more reverb and have just a bigger sound. So now I added the vintage warmer and the spring box.
Recording electric 12 strings can be a challenge to get them to sound, I would say, close to the way we are used to hearing them sound on vintage records, which is often the comparison, right? I went to great detail to uncover what was behind the original sound of the George Harrison's 1964 Rickenbacker 360. It was not easy to do the research. You can go on anatomyofguitartone.com and you can look up the Rickenbacker article, which basically details the caps that were used in the original Rickenbacker, the pot values, and the proper pickups. So Rickenbacker isn't always putting the proper pickups in the modern guitar. So I had Gemini pickups make some original period correct toaster pickups to put in. The pickups matched with the proper wiring and green chiclet cap really brought the guitar together to sound period correct and I'm super happy with it and thanks to Matt Brewster at 38th Street Guitars who also helped me with the wiring on that guitar. You know, I run the Rickenbacker often into a analog man comp roster with the Rick mod in it which was designed in mind of Rickenbacker players that need to not lose high end when they're playing. Some compressors will dull your signal and your tone and to get that chimey sound we're going to want to keep high end intact. Even after you do that and record it through an amp with a nice microphone. I use the Vox AC15 often. There still needs to be a little massaging in the mixing process, I feel like, to fully bring it to life. Also because a lot of those guitar tones were recorded to tape and sometimes they were bounced to tape, not even before they reached the mastering process. So I will often use tape emulation plugins, but I will also often use the PSP Vintage Warmer to help dial in the tone. Let's listen to a before and after. They're going to play one right after the other. So the first version is without, the second version is with. hear that I rolled the highs back ever so slightly just to emulate the sound of tape and more of a gentle tone to it, warm it up a little bit. And I also had the saturation a bit on using the drive knob on the vintage warmer, as well as a light amount of compression just to tie it together a little more so it wasn't quite as transient heavy. Not very much. It was very small moves with this, and the end result was to sound a little, I don't know, warmer and like it was running through more analog gear. The next PSP plugin I want to talk about is the Lexicon PSP 42 plugin. This is a delay plugin and it's a faithful reproduction of the Lexicon 42 digital delay, which is one of the earlier delay units, which had some very specific character to it, which many of us love. Some of the features on this is digital delay. Also, it's a phrase sampler, which you could do very creative things with just grabbing moments and having it loop and then letting go of it. There are variable sample rates on it. PSP also faithfully recreated the two opto limiters that were in the original Lexicon 42, one at the input stage and one just before the analog digital conversion. The first limiter affects the dry wet signals and the second affects the wet feedback. It really does something cool when you have the limiters engaged. Now, if you just don't want to have that 
original coloration that the limiters added and you can just turn it off very easily. I really like it on because I'm a big fan of those old 42 units and uh, any of the original character that I can get, I'm going to go for. It's really fantastic. It also features a couple of options which were not available in the original Lexicon 42. The PSP version has 28,800 milliseconds of delay time, an adjustable high cut filter, which I'm always a fan of whenever that's available. LFO tempo sync. So if you're using the LFO on the PSP Lexicon 42 to create a modulation effect, either a slow vibrato or more like an alien weird waveform on the delays, you can also sync this with your song, which is really nice. They've also set it up so that you can adjust the input level sensitivity to emulate minus 10 dB or plus four to recreate the sound of how those different input levels change the gain staging of the 42. You can also switch between modes, so you can have backwards or forward delays. We have actually four different modes of operation as far as how the delays are going to repeat, which is really nice. And the bypass switch on the Lexicon PSP 42 also leaves the input limiter in the signal path. So if you just like the sound of that, limiter, then you can have it in your signal chain, which is really great because those of us that like analog mixing sometimes just use gear because of the way that it colors the signal. Let's listen to a couple examples with the Lexicon PSP42 plugin engaged. For this first version, I'm going to use a Death by Audio Evil filter with a Stratocaster to generate the sound that then I ran through the PSP42. You can hear this degraded self-oscillation happening from the Lexicon PSP42 at the end there, which is just an exciting feature about the plugin. You can really generate some interesting delay sounds. So I didn't go for like straight up traditional delay sounds with either of these examples because I think you could imagine what they do and want to demonstrate maybe a little more about how they could be used in more of a character-like setting. Let's listen to the next version. I'm going to play slide guitar in this version with a Stratocaster as well. And I added the Lexicon PSP42 plug-in in a pretty slow setting. It's very slow repeats. And also I played a lot with the filter on it because I didn't want the repeats to be particularly bright or anything. Let's check it out.
I really, the semi-broken sound you get from the repeats, it puts me in a place sonically, has character to it, and it does evoke a very specific type of emotion, which I'm often looking for when designing sounds. One last plugin I want to talk about from PSP is the PSP Lottery. Now, this is their Leslie emulation plugin. They modeled the Leslie 122 and Leslie 147, and they've done a great job at it. I know I'm fanboying PSP this whole podcast and but it's just because I really like the plugins they make I feel like they're very flattering their sound and I feel like a lot of people have tried to create the Leslie effect and fallen short in some ways I don't know they've often sounded too narrow or I didn't feel like you could adjust them enough to based on the different instrument the material that you were feeding them PSP really thought about this and this is probably one of the most complex rotary or I should say rotary plugins that I've used and they've given us a lot of control over all the various parameters of the spinning cabinet which is that what a Leslie was that came with a Hammond organ and it's helpful to have those I don't often gravitate to more complex plugins I usually like fewer options but in this situation I feel like they're necessary for the PSP and PSP as a company isn't of the mindset of intentionally make as many parameters as possible in a plugin so they're very tasteful if there happen to be a lot of knobs on a plugin it's because the functionality really makes sense to do that so they're straight to the point when they need be like on the bin amp and then other plugins like the vintage warmer and give you more options and finally the lottery has quite a few options so happens that depending on if you're feeding it a, a vocal versus a guitar versus a bass versus a drum kit I mean, you could be creative with a rotating speaker you don't just have to send an organ through it different things are going to get accentuated and you might want varying degrees of tightness or looseness or saturation or room bleed or you might want to mess with how fast the speakers ramp up to or down to the faster slow speed the PSP Lottery gives us all these options let's just talk about some of the features on it so there is the center section which gives us some global controls over the plug-in those include the input amplifier settings mic setup the mechanical noise EQ and ambient settings it's nice that you can adjust the mechanical noise on the plugin sometimes you want that in a piece you want a lot of noise you want it to be vibey there's other times where I've had clients that are very picky about noise so the option to take it out is perfect because scenarios change and where you may want to use which there's a speed lever that allows you to set the smooth speed this is what I was talking about with adjusting from fast to slow also there's a button to switch between slow fast and stop mode which stops the Leslie from moving at all but you still get to run through the preamp section now the amplifier there's two different types of amps in this they've emulated the tube amp and the solid state amp so there are different versions of the Leslie and they both have different characteristics to it that's also a feature I haven't found in a lot of plugins now there's a setup section and amp only lets you to emit the electroacoustic parts of the emulation so no speakers it's essentially like running DI right without the option of the speakers and options for various popular miking techniques we have a couple of different mic positions that 
that they allow us to use on here. There's a lot of the, the classic ones, but there are a few that are less than conventional. And of course, there's a mono feature on there, which I encourage people not to discount. Stereo is awesome. Stereo isn't always better, so sometimes mono is going to be your friends be sure to check that out we have controls over the ambience and which means like the room sound there are a couple positions for it and basically just how much of the room sound is going to bleed into the microphones which is really important to give a roundness to your sound and i miss with a lot of rotating speaker plugins it just don't feel like it has enough of the vibe of me being in the room with the speaker now we have adjustments on the horn section as well as the drums. So there are two rotating parts of the Leslie speaker. There's the high part and the high rotating horn. And then we have the rotating drum. It's nice that we have some controls over, I would say, the way that each of those speakers operate, right? We have settings for the speed and the inertia and mic control, which just can really, I don't know, give us the flexibility when we're mixing because there are certain frequencies or characteristics that may come out in the horn that you may not like or it may come out in the drum that you don't like and you can get in there and tweak it and tailor it so that it sounds flattering for that instrument depending on where you feed it because definitely certain frequencies naturally get accentuated when you run through the Leslie so it's helpful to be able to counter that if the wrong frequencies get accentuated. And there are even more controls for the output section. I would encourage you to go to the PSP website and look at the Lottery to see all the, the features that it has. It's really thoughtfully designed. And despite it having a lot of parameters, it is actually pretty easy to find what you're looking for and make the changes. So I don't feel like I'm losing my mindset of creativity when I'm using the Lottery, which happens with some plugins that have a lot of options on them. Let's listen to an example I recorded using a baritone guitar. I made some tweaks from the stock setting from the lottery when it was loaded. I just made some adjustments so that the low end felt a little tighter rather than looser so as you're going through. And obviously, if you're choosing between a, the tube version and the solid state version, it's going to affect how tight your low end is. And I just played with a few of the, the features just until I felt like I dialed in. And one of those features also was the room sound and the bleed. I wanted to choose the right one. I wanted this to feel a little bigger. So I choose an option where it felt like the room was a bigger player in the sound. And I didn't really think too hard about what each of the parameters were. I went to each section where I knew they existed. And I found one and I just adjusted it and see what sounded better to me. I was using my Mackie MCU control inside Luna or controlling the plugin in Luna. And what I would do is I would find the, the parameter I wanted to adjust and see where 
where it was routed to on my MCU. And then I would just use the fader to adjust it and see if I liked it better or worse, which is generally the question you have to ask yourself as an engineer. Is this sounding better or is it sounding worse? And that's all that matters. Let's listen to another example using the Lottery with electric guitar. I used automation in that example to switch between the fast and slow speeds and get a sense of what it sounds like when it's ramping between the two speeds. I hope you've enjoyed that run through of some of my favorite PSP plugins. I use more than just the ones that we covered in this podcast. I just felt like highlighting those this week because I've been using them on some current projects. You should go to PSPAudioware.com to find out more. They have a few free plugins available for download on the website, as well as you can browse the manuals and hear the examples that they have on the website and videos and learn more about them as a company. I feel that the PSP plugins are very fairly priced. I feel like they probably could be charging a lot more for the plugins due to their history and the sound quality, but they've kept them very affordable, I feel like, for artists to have them in their lineup of plugins that they use regularly. Thank you again for joining me for episode 28 of Anatomy of Tone. I will see you for next week's podcast, which will be episode 29, and possibly the last one before the holiday. I might take two weeks off between Christmas and New Year's just to enjoy the holiday and visit with family and hang out in New York. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out to me. I'm at anatomyofguitartone.com. My YouTube page is Anatomy of Tone. I'm always into talking about music or answering questions or open to future subjects to discuss in the podcast. I hope everyone has a great week. It's a tale as old as Christmas itself. The legend, the legacy, the mystery. Who took the last Christmas cookie? Well, gee whiz, I think the last Christmas cookie should have gone to me. I am the youngest of the family, after all. Now, now, the last cookie should have been mine. For I'm the mother, and I baked them. What in God's name are you speaking of? The last cookie is for the man of the house. Ho, ho, ho. The last cookie is for me, Santa Claus. Are you morons? I did cookie monsters, trademark pending. And the last cookie should go to me. It in my name for Christ's sake. No, I made this and it's Is known around the world. Cookies are for 